Chapter 4, Part 2 of The American Language. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Mack, Tucson, Arizona. The American Language by H. L. Mencken. Chapter 4, American and English Today, Part 2. Differences in Usage. The differences here listed, most of them between words in everyday employment, are but examples of a divergence in usage which extends to every department of daily life. In his business, in his journeys from his home to his office, in his dealings with his family and servants, and in his sports and amusements, in his politics, and even in his religion, the American uses not only words and phrases, but whole syntactical constructions that are unintelligible to the Englishman, or intelligible only after laborious consideration. A familiar anecdote offers an example in miniature. It concerns a young American woman living in a region of prolific orchards who is asked by a visiting Englishman what the residents do with so much fruit. Her reply is a pun, quote, We eat all we can and what we can't, we can, end quote. This answer would mystify nine Englishmen out of ten, for in the first place it involves the use of the flat American A in can, and in the second place it applies an unfamiliar name to the vessel that every Englishman knows as a tin, and then adds to the confusion by deriving a verb from the substantive. There are no such things as canned goods in England. Over there they are tinned. The can that holds them is a tin. To can them is to tin them, and they are counted not as groceries, but as stores, and advertised not on billboards, but on hoardings. And the cook who prepares them for the table is not Nora or Maggie, but cook. And if she does other work in addition, she is not a girl for general housework, but a cook general, and not help, but a servant. And the boarder who eats them is not a boarder at all, but a paying guest, though he is said to board. And the grave of the tin, once it is emptied, is not the trash can, but the dustbin. And the man who carries it away is not the garbage man, or the ash man, or the white wings, but the dustman. An Englishman entering his home does not walk in upon the first floor, but upon the ground floor, which he calls the first floor, or more commonly first story, not forgetting the penultimate E, is what we call the second floor, and so on up to the roof, which is covered not with tin, but with slate, tiles, or leads, he does not take a paper, he takes in a paper. He does not ask his servant, is there any mail for me, but are there any letters for me? For mail, in the American sense, is a word he seldom uses, save in such compounds as mail van and mail train. He always speaks of it as the post. The man who brings it is not a letter carrier, but a postman. It is posted, not mailed, at a pillar box, not a mailbox. It never includes postal cards, but only postcards, 
never money orders, but only postal orders. The Englishman dictates his answers not to a typewriter, but to a typist. A typewriter is merely the machine. If he desires the recipient to call him by telephone, he doesn't say phone me at quarter of eight, but ring me up at quarter to eight. And when the call comes in, he says, are you there? When he gets home, he doesn't find his wife waiting for him in the parlor or living room, but in the drawing room or in her sitting room. And the tale of domestic disaster that she has to tell does not concern the hired girl, but the slavey and the scullery maid. He doesn't bring her a box of candy, but a box of sweets. He doesn't leave a derby hat in the hall, but a bowler. His wife doesn't wear shirtwaists, but blouses. When she buys one, she doesn't say charge it, but put it down. When she orders a tailor-made suit, she calls it a coat and skirt. When she wants a spool of thread, she asks for a reel of cotton. Such things are bought not in the department stores, but at the stores, which are substantially the same thing. In these stores, calico means a plain cotton cloth. In the United States, it means a printed cotton cloth. Things bought on the installment plan in England are said to be bought on the higher purchase plan or system. The installment business itself is the credit trade. Goods ordered by post, not mail, on which the dealer pays the cost of transportation are said to be sent not postpaid or prepaid, but post-free or carriage-free paid. An Englishman does not wear suspenders and neckties, but braces and cravats. Suspenders are his wife's garters. His own are sock suspenders. The family does not seek sustenance in a rare tenderloin and squash, but in underdone undercut and vegetable marrow. It does not eat beets, but beet greens. The wine on the table, if miraculously German, is not Rhine wine, but hock. The maid who laces the stays of the mistress of the house is not Maggie, but Robinson. The nursemaid is not Lizzie, but nurse. And so, by the way, is a trained nurse in a hospital, whose full style is not Miss Jones, but Nurse Jones. And the hospital itself, if private, is not a hospital at all, but a nursing home. And its trained nurses are plain nurses, or hospital nurses, or maybe nursing sisters. And the white-clad young gentlemen who make love to them are not studying medicine, but walking the hospitals. Similarly, an English law student does not study law, but the law. If an English boy goes to a public school, it is not a sign that he is getting his education free, but that his father is paying a good round sum for it and is accepted as a gentleman. A public school over there corresponds to our prep school. It is a place maintained chiefly by endowments, wherein boys of the upper classes are prepared for the universities. What we know as a public school is called a board school in England, not because the pupils are boarded, but because it is managed by a school board. English schoolboys are divided not into classes or grades, but into forms, which are numbered, the lowest being the first form. The benches they sit on are also called forms. The principal of an English school is a headmaster or headmistress. The lower pedagogues used to be ushers, but they are now assistant 
masters, or mistresses. The head of a university is a chancellor. He is always some eminent public man, and a vice-chancellor performs his duties. The head of a mere college may be a president, principal, rector, dean, or provost. At the universities, the students are not divided into freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and seniors, as with us, but are simply first-year men, second-year men, and so on. Such distinctions, however, are not as important in England as in America. Members of the university, they are called members, not students, do not flock together according to seniority. An English university man does not study, he reads. He knows nothing of frats, class days, senior proms, and such things. Save at Cambridge and Dublin, he does not even have a commencement. On the other hand, his daily speech is full of terms unintelligible to an American student. For example, Wrangler, Tripos, Head, Pass Degree, and Don. The upkeep of board schools in England comes out of the rates, which are the local taxes levied upon householders. For that reason, an English municipal taxpayer is called a ratepayer. The functionaries who collect and spend his money are not office holders, but public servants. The head of the local police is not a chief of police, but a chief constable. The fire department is the fire brigade. The street cleaner is a crossing sweeper. The parish poorhouse is a workhouse. If it is maintained by two or more parishes jointly, it becomes a union. A pauper who accepts his hospitality is said to be on the rates. A policeman is a bobby, familiarly and constable officially. He is commonly mentioned in the newspapers not by his surname, but as PC643A, that is, police constable number 643A. The fire laddie, the ward executive, the roundsman, the strong arm squad, and other such objects of American devotion are unknown in England. An England saloon keeper is officially a licensed victualler. His saloon is a public house or colloquially a pub. He does not sell beer by the bucket or can or growler or schooner, but by the pint. He and his brethren taken together are the licensed trade. His back room is a parlor. If he has a few upholstered benches in his place, he usually calls it a lounge. He employs no bartenders or mixologists. Barmaids do the work, maybe with a barman to help. The American language, as we have seen, has begun to take in the English boot and shop, and is showing hospitality to headmaster, haberdasher, and weekend. But subaltern, civil servant, porridge, moor, draper, treacle, tram, and mufti are still strangers in the United States. As bleachers, picayune, airline, campus, chore, scoot, stogie and hoodoo are in england a subaltern is a commissioned officer in the army under the rank of captain a civil servant is a public servant in the national civil service if he is of high rank he is usually called a permanent official porridge moor scullery draper treacle and tram though unfamiliar still need no explanation 
Mufti means ordinary male clothing. An army officer out of uniform is said to be in mufti. To this officer, a sack suit or business suit is a lounge suit. He carries his clothes not in a trunk or grip or suitcase, but in a box. He does not miss a train. He loses it. He does not ask for a round-trip ticket, but for a return ticket. If he proposes to go to the theater, he does not reserve or engage seats. He books them, and not at the box office, but at the booking office. If he sits downstairs, it is not in the orchestra, but in the stalls. If he likes vaudeville, he goes to a music hall, where the headliners are the top liners. If he has to stand in line, he does it not in a line, but in a queue. In England, a corporation is a public company or limited liability company. The term corporation over there is applied to the mayor, aldermen, and sheriffs of a city, as in the London Corporation. An Englishman writes LTD, period, after the name of an incorporated bank or trading company, as we write INC. He calls its president its chairman or managing director. Its stockholders are its shareholders and hold shares instead of stock in it. Its bonds are debentures. The place wherein such companies are floated and looted, the Wall Street of England, is called the City, with a capital C. Bankers, stock jobbers, promoters, directors, and other such leaders of its business are called the city men. The financial editor of a newspaper is its city editor. Government's bonds are consoles or stocks or the funds. To have money in the stocks is to own such bonds. Promissory notes are bills. An Englishman hasn't a bank account, but a banking account. He draws checks, C-H-E-Q-U-E-S, not checks, not on his bank, but on his bankers. In England, there's a rigid distinction between a broker and a stockbroker. A broker means not a dealer in securities, as in our Wall Street broker, but a dealer in secondhand furniture. To have the brokers in the house means to be bankrupt with one's very household goods in the hands of one's creditors. Tariff reform in England does not mean a movement toward free trade, but one toward protection. The word government, meaning what we call the administration, is always capitalized and plural. That is, the government are considering the advisability, etc. Vestry, committee, council, ministry, and even company are also plural, though sometimes not capitalized. A member of parliament does not run for office, he stands. He does not make a campaign, but a canvas. He does not represent a district, but a division or constituency. He never makes a stumping trip, but always a speaking tour. When he looks after his fences, he calls it nursing the constituency. At a political meeting, they are often rough in England. The bouncers are called stewards. Suffragettes used to delight in stabbing them with hairpins. A member of Parliament is not afflicted by the numerous bugaboos that menace an American congressman. He knows nothing of lame ducks, pork barrels, gag rules, junkets, 
gerrymanders, omnibus bills, snakes, niggers in the woodpile, salt river, crow, bosses, ward healers, men higher up, silk stockings, repeaters, ballot box stuffers, and straight and split tickets. He always calls them ballots or voting papers. He has never heard of direct primaries, recall, or the initiative and referendum. A roll call in Parliament is a division. A member speaking is said to be up on his legs. When the House adjourns, it is said to rise. A member referring to another in the course of debate does not say the gentleman from Manchester, but the honorable gentleman, written H-O-N period gentleman. Or if he happens to be a privy councillor, the right honorable gentleman. Or if he is a member for one of the universities, the honorable and learned gentleman. If the speaker chooses to be intimate or facetious, he may say my honorable friend. In the United States, a pressman is a man who runs a printing press. In England, he is a newspaper reporter, or as the English usually say, a journalist. This journalist works not at space rates, but at lineage rates. A printing press is a machine. An editorial in a newspaper is a leading article or leader. An editorial photograph is a leaderette. A newspaper clipping is a cutting. A proofreader is a corrector of the press. A pass to the theater is an order. The room clerk of a hotel is the secretary. A real estate agent or dealer is an estate agent. The English keep up most of the odd distinctions between physicians and surgeons, barristers, and solicitors. A surgeon is often plain mister and not doctor. Neither he nor a doctor has an office, but always a surgery or consulting room. A barrister is greatly superior to a solicitor. He alone can address the higher courts and the parliamentary committees. A solicitor must keep to office work and the courts of the first instance. A man with a grievance goes first to his solicitor, who then instructs or briefs a barrister for him. If that barrister in the course of the trial wants certain evidence removed from the record, he moves that it be struck out, not stricken out, as an American lawyer would say. Only barristers may become judges. An English barrister, like his American brother, takes a retainer when he's engaged, but the rest of his fee does not wait upon the termination of the case. He expects and receives a refresher from time to time. A barrister is never admitted to the bar, but is always called. If he becomes a king's counsel, or K.C., a purely honorary appointment, he is said to have taken silk. The common objects and phenomena of nature are often differently named in English and American. As we saw in a previous chapter, such Americanisms as creek and run for small streams are practically unknown in England, and the English moor and downs early disappeared from American. The Englishman knows the meaning of sound, that is, Long Island sound, but he nearly always uses channel in place of it. In the same way, the American knows the meaning of the English bog, but rejects the English distinction between it and swamp, and almost never uses swamp or marsh, often elided to mosh. The Englishman seldom, if ever, 
describes a severe storm as a hurricane, a cyclone, a tornado, or a blizzard. He never uses cold snap, cloud burst, or under the weather. He does not say that the temperature is 29 degrees Fahrenheit or that the thermometer or the mercury is at 29 degrees, but there are three degrees of frost. He calls ice water iced water. He knows nothing of bluegrass country or of penny y'all. What we call the mining regions he knows as the black country. He never, of course, uses down east or upstate. Many of our names for common fauna and flora are unknown to him, save as strange Americanisms, that is, terrapin, moose, persimmon, gumbo, eggplant, alfalfa, sweet corn, sweet potato, and yam. Until lately, he called the grapefruit a shaddock. He still calls the beet a beetroot and the rutabaga a mangle wurzel. He is familiar with many fish that we seldom see, that is, the turbo. He also knows the hare, which is seldom heard of in American, but he knows nothing of deviled crabs, crab cocktails, clam chowder, or oyster stew, and he never goes to oyster suppers, clam bakes, or burgaloo picnics. He doesn't buy peanuts when he goes to the circus. He calls them monkey nuts, and to eat them publicly is infra dig. The common American use of peanut as an adjective of disparagement, as in peanut politics, is incomprehensible to him. In England, a hack is not a public coach, but a horse let out at hire, or one of similar quality. A life insurance policy is usually not an insurance policy at all, but an assurance policy. What we call the normal income tax is the ordinary tax, and what we call the surtax is the super tax. An Englishman never lives on a street, but always in it. He never lives in a block of houses, but in a row. It is never in a section of the city, but always in a district. Going home by train, he always takes the down train, no matter whether he is proceeding southward to Wimbledon, westward to Shepherd's Bush, northward to Tottenham, or eastward to Noakes Hill. A train headed toward London is always an up train, and the track it runs on is the up line. Eastbound and westbound tracks and trains are unknown in England. When an Englishman boards a bus, it is not at a street corner, but at a crossing, though he is familiar with such forms as Hyde Park Corner. The place he is bound for is not three squares or blocks away, but three turnings. Square in England always means a small park. A backyard is a garden. A subway is always a tube or the underground, as in the metro. But an underground passage for pedestrians is a subway. English streets have no sidewalks. They always call them pavements or footways. An automobile is always a motor car or motor. Auto is almost unknown, and with it the verb to auto. So is machine. So is joyride. An Englishman always calls russet, yellow, or tan shoes, brown shoes, or if they cover the ankle, boots. He calls a pocketbook a purse and gives the name of pocketbook to what we call a memorandum book. His walking stick is always a stick, never a cane. By cord, he means something strong, almost what we call twine, 
a thin cord he always calls a string. His twine is the lightest sort of string. When he applies the adjective homely to a woman, he means that she is simple and home-loving, not necessarily that she is plain. He uses dessert not to indicate the whole last course at dinner, but to designate the fruit only. The rest is ices or sweets. He uses vest, not in place of waistcoat, but in place of undershirt. Similarly, he applies pants, not to his trousers, but to his drawers. An Englishman who inhabits bachelor quarters is said to live in chambers. If he has a flat, he calls it a flat, not an apartment. Flat houses are often mansions. The janitor or superintendent thereof is a caretaker. The scoundrels who snoop around in search of divorce evidence are not private detectives, but private inquiry agents. The Englishman is naturally unfamiliar with baseball, and in consequence his language is bare of the countless phrases and metaphors that it has applied to American. Many of these phrases and metaphors are in daily use among us. For example, fan, rooter, bleachers, batting average, doubleheader, pennant winner, gate money, busher, minor leaguer, glass arm, to strike out, to foul, to be shut out, to coach, to play ball, on the bench, on to his curves, and three strikes and out. The national game of draw poker has also greatly enriched American with terms that are either quite unknown to the Englishman or known to him only as somewhat dubious Americanisms. Among them, cold deck, kitty, full house, divvy, a card up his sleeve, three of a kind, to ante up, to pony up, to hold out, to cash in, to go it one better, to chip in, and for keeps. But the Englishman uses many more racing terms and metaphors than we do, and he has got a good many phrases from other games, particularly cricket. The word cricket itself has a definite figurative meaning. It indicates in general good sportsmanship. To take unfair advantage of an opponent is not cricket. The sport of boating, so popular on the Thames, has also given colloquial English some familiar terms, almost unknown in the United States. That is punt and weir. Contrarywise, pungy, bateau, and scow are unheard of in England, and canoe is not long emerged from the estate of an Americanism. The game known as ten pins in America is called nine pins in England, and once had that name over here. The Puritans forbade it, and its devotees changed its name in order to evade the prohibition. Finally, there is soccer, a form of football quite unknown in the United States. What we call simply football is rugby or rugger to the Englishman. The word soccer is derived from association. The rules of the game were established by the London Football Association. Soccer is one of the relatively few English experiments in ellipsis. Another is to be found in Baker Lou, the name of one of the London underground lines from Baker Street and Waterloo, its termini. The English have an ecclesiastical vocabulary with which we are almost unacquainted, and it is in daily use. The church bulks large in public affairs over there. Such terms as vicar, canon, verger, prebendary, primate, curate, 
nonconformist, dissenter, convocation, minister, chapter, crypt, living, presentation, glebe, benefice, locum tenens, suffragan, almoner, dean, and pluralist are to be met in the English newspapers constantly, but on this side of the water they are seldom encountered. Nor do we hear much of matins, louds, lay readers, ritualism, and the liturgy. The English use of holy orders is also strange to us. They do not say that a young man is studying for the ministry, but that he is reading for holy orders. They do not say that he is ordained, but that he takes orders. Save he be in the United Free Church of Scotland, he is never a minister. Save he be nonconformist, he is never a pastor. A clergyman of the establishment is always either a rector, a vicar, or a curate, and colloquially a parson. In American, chapel simply means a small church, usually the branch of some larger one. In English, it has a special sense of place of worship, unconnected with the establishment. Though three-fourths of the people of Ireland are Catholics, in Munster and Connaught, more than nine-tenths, and the Protestant Church of Ireland has been disestablished since 1871, a Catholic place of worship in the country is still a chapel, not a church. So is a Methodist whaling place in England, however large it may be, though now and then a tabernacle is substituted. In the same way, the English Catholics sometimes vary chapel with oratory, as in Brompton Oratory. A Methodist in Great Britain is not a Methodist, but a Wesleyan. Contrarywise, what the English call simply a churchman is an Episcopalian in the United States. What they call the church, always capitalized, is the Protestant Episcopal Church. What they call a Roman Catholic is simply a Catholic, and what they call a Jew is usually softened, if he happens to be an advertiser, to a Hebrew. The English Jews have no such idiotic fear of the plain name as that which afflicts the more pushing and obnoxious of the race in America. News of Jewry is a common headline in the London Daily Telegraph, which is owned by Lord Burnham, a Jew, and has had many Jews on its staff, including Judah P. Benjamin, the American. The American language, of course, knows nothing of dissenters, nor of such gladiators of dissent as the Plymouth Brethren, nor of the nonconformist conscience, though the United States suffers from it even more damnably than England. The English, to make it even, get on without circuit riders, holy rollers, drunkards, Seventh-day Adventists, and other such American ferret nature, and are born, live, die, and go to heaven without the aid of either the uplift or the Chautauqua. In music, the English cling to an archaic and unintelligible nomenclature long since abandoned in America. Thus they call a double whole note a brave, a whole note a semi-brave, and a half note a minim, a quarter note a crotchet, an eighth note a quaver, a sixteenth note a semi-quaver, a thirty-second note a demi-semi-quaver, and a sixty-fourth note hemi-demi-semi-quaver, or semi-demi-sem-quaver.
if by any chance an English musician should write a 128th note, he probably wouldn't know what to call it. This clumsy terminology goes back to the days of plain chant, with its longa, brevis, semi-brevis, minima, and semi-minima. The French and Italians cling to a system almost as confusing, but the Germans use ganz, halbe, vertel, achtel, etc. I've been unable to discover the beginnings of the American system, but it would seem to be borrowed from the German, since the earliest times the majority of music teachers in the United States have been Germans, and most of the rest have had German training. In the same way, the English hold fast to a clumsy and inaccurate method of designating the sizes of printers' types. In America, the simple point system makes the business easy. A line of 14-point type occupies exactly the vertical space of two lines of 7-point, but the British still indicate differences in size by such arbitrary and confusing names as brilliant, diamond, small pearl, pearl, ruby, ruby nonpareil, nonpareil, minion nonpareil, emerald, minion, brevier, bourgeois, long premier, small pica, pica, English, the great premier, and double pica. They also cling to a fossil system of numerals in stating ages. Thus an Englishman will say that he is seven and forty, not that he is forty-seven. This is probably a direct survival, preserved by more than a thousand years of English conservatism, of the Anglo-Saxon Seofan and Feotwig. He will also say that he weighs 11 stone instead of 154 pounds. A stone is 14 pounds, and it is always used in stating the heft of a man. Finally, he employs some designations of time as fortnight and twelve-month, a great deal more than we do, and has certain special terms of which we know nothing. For example, quarter day, bank holiday, long vacation, lady day, and Michaelmas. Per contra, he knows nothing whatever of our Thanksgiving, Arbor, Labor, and Decoration Days, or of legal holidays, or of Yom Kippur. In English usage, to proceed the word directly is always used to signify immediately. In American, a contingency gets into it, and it may mean no more than soon. In England, quite means completely, wholly, entirely, altogether, to the utmost extent, nothing short of, in the fullest sense, positively, absolutely. In America, it is conditional, and means only nearly, approximately, substantially, as in, he sings quite well. An Englishman does not say, I will pay you up for an injury, but I will pay you back. He doesn't look up a definition in the dictionary, he looks it out. He doesn't say, being ill, I am getting on well, but I am going on well. He doesn't use the American different from or different than. He uses different to. He never adds the pronoun in such locutions as it hurts me, but says simply it hurts. He never catches up with you on the street. He catches you up. He never says, are you through, but have you finished? He never uses to notify as a transitive verb. An official act may be notified, but not a person. 
He never uses gotten as the perfect participle of to get. He always uses plain got. An English servant never washes the dishes. She always washes the dinner or tea things. She doesn't live out, but goes into service. She smashes not the mirror, but the looking glass. Her beau is not her fellow, but her young man. She does not keep company with him, but walks out with him. That an Englishman always calls out, I say, and not simply say, when he desires to attract a friend's attention or register a protestation of incredulity, this perhaps is too familiar to need notice. His here, here, and oh, oh are also well known. He is much less prodigal with goodbye than the American. He uses good day and good afternoon far more often. A shop assistant would never say goodbye to a customer. To an Englishman, it would have a subtly offensive smack. Good afternoon would be more respectful. Another word that makes him flinch is dirt. He never uses it as we do to describe the soil in the garden. He always says earth. Various very common American phrases are quite unknown to him. For example, over his signature, on time and planted to corn. The first named he never uses and he has no equivalent for it. An Englishman who issues a signed statement simply makes it in writing. He knows nothing of our common terms of disparagement, such as kike, wop, yap, and rube. His pet name for a tiller of the soil is not rube or sigh, but hodge. When he goes gunning, he does not call it hunting, but shooting. Hunting is reserved for the chase of the fox. An intelligent Englishwoman coming to America to live told me that the two things which most impeded her first communications with untraveled Americans, even above the gross differences between England and American pronunciation and intonation, were the complete absence of the general utility adjective jolly from the American vocabulary and the puzzling omnipresence and versatility of the American verb to fix. In English colloquial usage, jolly means almost anything. It intensifies all other adjectives, even including miserable and homesick. An Englishman is jolly tired, jolly hungry, or jolly well tired. His wife is jolly sensible. His dog is jolly keen. The prices he pays for things are jolly dear never stiff or high, all Americanism. But he has no noun to match the American proposition meaning proposal, business affair, case, consideration, plan, theory, solution, and what not. Only the German zug can be ranged beside it. And he has no verb in such wide practice as to fix. In his speech, it means only to make fast or to determine. In American, it may mean to repair, as in the plumber fixed the pipe, to dress, as in Mary fixed her hair, to prepare, as in the cook is fixing the gravy, to bribe, as in the judge was fixed, to settle, as in the quarrel was fixed up, to heal, as in the doctor fixed his boil, to finish, as in Murphy fixed Sweeney in the third round, to be well-to-do, as in John is well-fixed, to arrange as in I fixed up the quarrel, to be drunk as in the whiskey fixed him, to punish as in I'll fix him, and to correct as in he fixed my bad Latin. 
Moreover, it is used in all its English senses. An Englishman never goes to a dentist to have his teeth fixed. He does not fix the fire. He makes it up or mends it. He is never well fixed, either in money or by liquor. The English use quite a great deal more than we do, and as we have seen in a different sense. Quite rich in American means tolerably rich, richer than most. Quite so in English is identical in meaning with exactly so. In American, just is almost equivalent to the English quite, as in just lovely. Thornton shows that this use of just goes back to 1794. The word is also used in place of exactly in other ways as just in time, just how many, and just what do you mean. End of chapter 4, part 2. Recording by Tom Mack, Tucson, Arizona.